Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. I uh, hope you've had a nice break. Uh, I've been, uh, I had a break, but also catching up on other work, but back with the podcast now. So I assure you, I'm still here. Uh, this is, this episode is going to be about um, the history of sex education, or kind of a history of sex education, and also uh, also ethnography. So how I got into doing what I do. I think it tells quite a, an interesting story, generally, uh, about politics of sex education. But before I get cracking on to that, uh, I've been, the reason that I'm doing this topic is that somebody asked me to. Uh, so you've been sending in your, your questions, either your, uh, your, the things you would like me to cover in the show, which is what we're doing today, or your uh, problems or scenarios or dilemmas that you would like me to, to cover. So thank you very much. That's set me up for the next few shows. That's really, really great. Also, some of you have sent some really kind words about the show that you do, in fact, listen. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for that. I'm really, really grateful. Um, it is easier for me to make shows uh, if you tell me what it is you would like or give me dilemmas you'd like me to cover. If you don't have any of your own, and let's say you see some advice out there in the wild that you think could do with the culture, sex, relationships, treatment, um, you know, where I talk about Deleuze and Guattari for like 45 minutes or whatever, um, then uh, please feel free to send that in too. So there's a Google form, uh, the link to which you can find in the bio, uh, where you can send in your questions anonymously or not anonymously if you prefer. So thank you for all that too. Okay, so, uh, right, so, the history of sex education. Now, I don't know, well, I'm not a historian, and um, so I'm just going to give, like, a very brief kind of history about uh, the history of sex ed in the UK over the last hundred years or so. Um, it is not the least bit comprehensive, but I've got links to some articles uh, in the show notes if you want to read this in more detail yourself it's pretty interesting stuff but i'll try and summarize the whole thing and then i'll bring in my bit when we get to the late 1990s which is when i started to do this and then i'll kind of tell a story about the whole the whole thing and what i think some of the problems are um and where some of the solutions might be but it's mostly problems sadly <clears throat> so uh there wasn't really formal sex education, and by sex education I mean we mean sex education, so education about the sexual act, uh, until there wasn't formal sex ed in schools until around, well, yeah, till around the 1940s. Uh, before that, it was very much seen as being something which should be done in the community. Uh, either by parents or, I guess, quite a bit before that, uh, the church. I'm thinking of, you know, medieval times, uh, when we have our medieval expert on, Dr. Eleanor Yanagar, uh, also um, uh, known as my girlfriend. Sometimes when she's around, I'll put a microphone in front of her and make her talk uh, consensually on the podcast. Um, so, yeah, sex education was very much seen as a kind of a thing that parents should do. And there were instances, the increasing instances of teachers giving young people kind of one-to-one -one advice, because presumably young people, well, they weren't called young people then, they were called children then, um, which is another podcast probably. Um, uh, children were speaking to their teachers and their teachers were giving them advice about 
sex uh, in I, I expect quite you know rudimentary ways um, and I expect a lot of uh, what would call young women now uh, asking teachers about periods which must have been very very frightening and often uh, girls just weren't being told about periods at all uh, just as boys weren't being told anything to do with erections and nocturnal emissions and that kind of stuff um, so yeah there was in fact a case in so not only was it kind of expected that this would happen um, in the home, then when there were cases of actually happening in schools, such as there was a time in Dronfield just before the First World War, Dronfield is from Derbyshire, which is where I'm from, it actually caused a bit of an outrage when it was happening, even when it sounds like the sex education that was actually being, that was actually being taught was very moralistic, very narrow, all about reproductive sex, which is what you might think would be the sex education of the time but even that was seen to be quite scandalous and caused the local health agency to write a report about it and stuff so um but increasingly certainly in the interwar years so after the first world war and during the second world war things start, started to shift a bit and the whole history of what i'm about to talk about really is the kind of the bottom-up approach and the top-down approach. So there was increasing amounts of um, sex education kind of going un being under the radar a little bit because I think of the uh, of the story I was just telling about Dronfield in 1913. But increasingly, local schools and some local authorities were deciding that they needed to address this topic. Um, and this was picked up on at a kind of national policy level uh, by uh, the UK government, the Department of Education. And so this resulted in the first kind of like handbooks or like pamphlets for schools suggesting that they could or maybe should be delivering some form of sex education. And again, this very rudimentary sex education. And it, we are just talking about sex, the sexual act. And the reason why we're talking about that and the reason why there was more attention being paid to this was after the First World War, during and after the First World War, the government were getting increasingly concerned about what they then called VD, venereal disease, which then was called STDs, and now we call STIs or sex infections. Um, not all infections uh, cause disease, and so that's why we say infection, not disease. And um, so there was increased worry about that, after the, certainly after the First World War. But also, there, after the Second World War, there was a increased, increased kind of worry about the kind of um, about the kind of the the nature of certainly children slash young people. Young people are starting to emerge as a kind of a a thing at this point. Um, you know, after the the traumas and the horrors of the Second World War. Uh, people's attitudes towards sex and relationships were kind of changing or having to change um, because of uh, the uh, you know, so many people were killed or displaced or um, uh, and so many people not so many kids not living with their parents and stuff because of evacuation and all this kind of stuff there was a sense that the the you know and also the times were very very hard so there was a sense from policymakers that something had to be kind of done about this because otherwise there might be this kind of out of control sexuality right this kind of and again if you listen back to any of the episodes i've done with eleanor um you'll you'll remember that you know sex in medieval times was seen as this um 
that's basically like okay if done under very certain narrow circumstances but if it's allowed to get out of control it can be very dangerous um, because of humor theory it was thought that uh, people um, that men uh, might get too hot uh, if they're uh, if they weren't able to have uh, as as much sex as they wanted and if they got too hot and their libidos got kind of out of control then it might actually burn down cities because cities were made out of wood then uh, like the great fire of london for example there were many anyway so let's get back on track so in the 1940s uh there were there were the, the increasing attempts to kind of codify or to at least encourage and talk about a form of sex education so i'm reading one in front of me now the board of education educational pamphlet number 119 sex education in schools and youth organizations and in it they say look uh, lots of schools have already been doing this, so just so you know, uh, we've been looking into this. We think it's probably a good idea that you start to do it. And I'll just read out a bit now, which kind of summarises this kind of position. So starting from section 9. In the sections which follow, an attempt has been made to summarise some of the considerations that have prompted teachers and others to engage in sex education in recent years and to indicate the lines along which they feel that progress has been made. It is apparent that most of those who have given serious thought to this question recognise that sex education in the schools includes two main elements. One, the first of these is instruction and in the physiology of sex, and increasingly this is dealt with objectively at an early age before strong emotional associations develop, and wherever possible, as an integral part of a normal course in, for example, biology or general science. Two, the second, no less important element is the giving of guidance and advice, either to groups or individuals, toward a better understanding of the sexual impulse and emotion, and the moral and social problems arising from it. Here, the approach is made when the child is more mature and is usually undertaken by the head teacher or some other member of the staff in whom the child's particular trust and confidence reposes. That's an excellent sentence. It would be out of place to attempt to analyse here the essentially personal approach whereby individual teachers assist young people to discover for themselves a right code of conduct in sex matters. That's interesting. It's like instead of instead of giving a discourse, they're saying they're saying, you know, it's up to the teacher to help the young person have a find their own way to find a technology of the self that you know would work for them. Which is interesting. I quite like this so far, some of it. Um, each teacher will draw upon his own wisdom and experience of life, lol, or the religious and moral resources upon which he himself has relied. <clears throat> Doubtless, he will try to show that the sex impulse, like other creative impulses, can make for personal and social happiness, or mar it, and that the quality of life of individuals, as of nations must depend, in part at least, upon relating powers and potentialities to the well-being of the wider community. All creative social effort demands self-control and the exercise of conscience and discrimination in the realm of personal conduct and relationships. The important and difficult task of the educator is to make such self-control and discrimination seem rational and inspiring. Opportunities for this kind of advice are, of course, limited in the elementary schools, that's uh, infant primary schools because of the present early school leaving age but there is no doubt that the senior pupils in secondary schools and the members of youth organizations have received much wise and helpful advice along these lines and they have almost invariably responded seriously and sensibly whenever the subject has been discussed 
And that's from 1943. And it's clearly talking about a uh, this idea of we don't want sex to get out of control. It uh, implies that there is a, a normality, that there is an ethical way to do it, a non-ethical way to do it, and a certain degree of norms. But it's actually quite positive, a lot of that, in my view. And this is actually the kind of the tone of all this advice that was being given. Um, so these pamphlets were released fairly regularly until 1977, I think it was. And um, this one didn't actually talk about what we mean by sex and the kinds of things that it could include, but gradually speaking over the years, it did start to include those things. It started to include the various topics and certainly bits of anatomy that we should be talking about in the 1950s. And then, and then as there was a huge change in sexual and relationship cultures in the 1960s, uh, including an assemblage that involved uh, feminism, uh, the pill, um, divorce, uh, the partial decriminalization of homosexuality, uh, you know, the Beatles, uh, television, um, but also um, increased work opportunities, nearly full employment at the time, strong trade unions, so working class folk had more money than they'd ever had before, the end of the austere uh, period after the Second World War, so this is like a reasonably good time to be a working class person, and so more freedom, uh, but also leading to more potentially unplanned pregnancies and second relationships and uh, that kind of stuff. So, as that kind of developed, so did these pamphlets. And by the 1970s, they were talking about um, a kind of a sex education, which was uh, just as much about the whole person, a more holistic kind of sex education, which actually started to talk about things like relationships and self-esteem. Um, and actually by the 1970s as well, we started to see uh, organisations come in and play a key role. So, for example, the Family Planning Association were playing a really important part. Uh, also, some uh, local authorities were also kind of possibly a little under the radar, but clearly not that under the radar, were providing uh, quite a progressive version of this. So influenced by the Gay Liberation Front, Women's Liberation as well, um, and also increasingly aware of a lot of the racist discourses uh, in society and in sex education and stuff that a lot of um, local authorities were providing resources where that schools could tap into where they might deliver this kind of quite progressive sex education in the 1970s. Then the Conservatives came to power. So the Conservatives under Margaret Thatcher came to power in 1979, and there was a huge amount of pushback against a lot of this stuff, um, which divided in, which, well, it kind of divided, well, no, I'll talk about that in a second, which basically uh, meant that we had, that this started to become this very political issue. Not a political issue in the sense that it was already a political issue because there was agreement that this was a good thing and necessary. Uh, and there was also disagreement from academics who were writing about this in the Health Education Journal as well. But generally speaking, the government were kind of, um, successive governments were kind of drawing a line, a kind of a midpoint line of where they thought sex education should be in response to what was happening on the ground. So again, it's this relationship between the bottom up, the kinds of stuff that was being 
taught, but also responding to the various social needs and the top-down approach of, well, we'll try and develop some guidance for teachers that might help them. Then during the 1960s and 70s, there were organisations and and others who would be able to support schools to deliver this if they wanted to. Now, actually, before we get to the pushback from the Conservative government in the 19, from 1979 onwards, it's also important to remember that sex education or this even either early sex education or this kind of sex education we're talking about now which is more to do with um the more holistic sex education was still very patchy okay some schools were doing it and some schools were not doing it and some well most kids were learning what sex was they were learning this very narrow sex education this biological sex education this kind of reproductive kind of sex uh, but the quality and the depth and the breadth of that varied enormously. And that is still true today. Okay, um, It depended on whether the school, it depended on the head teacher, the governors and the particular um, teachers responsible. And also from the, it also depended on the community that they were in. So, so the actually being the actual experience of sex education that people received or that was delivered varied enormously, not just kind of, and just in my experience, just jumping to the point where I know about this stuff, not just between cities and not just between kind of uh, rural and urban areas, but also kind of between areas. It really would depend on whether that head teacher was into it or not. And so a lot of that depends on what the head teacher's own experience of sex and relationships was, what their own like moral teaching was. So to go back to that quote I was just reading out, you know, what their own <laughs> religious or moral views were, um, and their own set of knowledges about what what sex is and what sex is for and, and what's good for students. Anyway, so come nineteen seventy nine, any kind of like advances that were being made were started to face a pushback, and this is because. Um, there was a, a new form of social conservatism coming in, which meant that sex education in the UK started to become a political topic in the sense that there was an adversarial political nature to it. So people were doing early, you know, early culture war stuff about this back in the day. Okay, uh, by highlighting some of the um, some of the materials that uh, left-wing local authorities were making available to 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 young people uh, we can say young people now by this point in the 1970s that's the thing that now existed um and uh by and also kind of to kind of uh, you know margaret thatcher's conservatives were very much kind of against the the idea of what might seem to be a permissive society and so they saw votes in this so it became a political issue this meant crucially that some of the organizations that had been involved up until the end of the 1970s uh, were still involved but they were now kind of having to kind of advocate for sex education they became kind of uh, more kind of activists rather than just simply expert organizations delivering or helping schools to deliver RSE they also had to become advocates for sex education in and of itself this is when we began to see the sex education forum who later became a quango fpa brook 
Um, they were the th- uh, three main players, um, particularly around young people stuff. But then later on, there was the Terence Higgins Trust and the National AIDS Trust, very important players in the fight for um, safer sex and HIV and inclusive uh, 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 sex education. Uh, oh, see also Stonewall, of course, as well. So that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of uh, assemblage of things going on in the 80s now of course to complicate matters um there was also hiv and aids and so two strands started to approach so from just how from what i understand from this norman fowler who was the health secretary during the hiv and aids crisis actually did try to get to grips with this as a public health issue and so services for people and to both prevent HIV and AIDS, prevent HIV and AIDS cases, and to increase um, safer sex practices. In combination with the bottom-up services that Terence Higgins uh, Trust and National AIDS Trust and then Stonewall were uh, fighting for, much in a similar way that um, that was happening in the US, so with ACT UP, uh, who were talking about the uh, increased, uh, who were campaigning for the increased access to antiretroviral uh, uh, drugs and treatments and condom distribution schemes, etc. A similar thing was going on here with folk like the Terence Higgins Trust. And so there was an increased kind of awareness of the importance of doing, for example, outreach sexual health services, community-based sexual health services. And so there began to be two strands, one which was more supported by the government, so health services more broadly were seen as a way of kind of uh, reaching the people that needs to be reached during the HIV and AIDS crisis but then because sex education became a political football there was a huge amount of homophobia about sex education so this is where what you might have heard of as the section 28 clause came in Uh, I always forget which act it was the local government act 1987 or 89 or something but clause 28 or section 28 people call it which basically banned local authorities from uh, creating or using resources which uh, foregrounded the, or which suggested that um, you could have gay families, basically. And the increasing homophobia and the increasing policy homophobia and the increasing tightening of um discourse around sex education meant that schools start to become very timid much more timid about delivering sex ed in schools okay and apparently so this was in the time when local authorities would have uh would uh maintain all the schools in their area so all schools would be maintained by the local authority and they would have teams who would support schools in delivering this so um, apparently requests for advice um, from uh, these local authorities uh, from schools um, halved in this period because increasingly schools started to be worried about what they were teaching okay and there was this because this was all being played out through the right-wing press the through the lens of homophobia at the time and again just to be clear the uh, the conservative government and the right-wing press were increasing the levels of homophobia in society so there was more homophobia before um to a less homophobia before uh, the right-wing government came in they came in weaponized hiv and aids uh, against gay communities uh, and that increased levels of homophobia in society and so then it became a very anxious topic 
to be taught. This kind of kept happening all throughout the 90s and, and the mid-90s. But also, during that period, um, as well as there being the HIV and AIDS crisis and an increase in sexually transmitted infections generally, there was also a much a, an increasing level of teenage pregnancy rates, uh, many of which were unplanned. And so this became a real issue, and we started to have the highest rates of unplanned, well, the highest rates of teenage pregnancy in Western Europe. And we're getting to the period where I kind of come in, okay? So um, the Tory government, just like the Tory government at the moment, who are in the final throes of whatever whatever they, whatever their project is right now, I have no idea what they're doing. I'm going to come back to that in a bit, because obviously there's a cultural element to this that we need to talk about now. Um so back in the mid-90s, uh, it was clear something needed to be done about this. John Major's government did start to look into um, uh, into this thing known as social exclusion, which is something that Tony Blair government picked up on. But the role of teenage pregnancies and that, and that there's something we need to do something about. And then in uh, 1999, the government then really, really uh, introduced the teenage pregnancy strategy. Now... So, let's rewind a little bit. So, I'm going to talk about me for a bit. So, uh, I went to university in 1994. I did a law degree, <laughs> which some of you might know. And But at the same time, I was also doing youth work in my summer holidays, in my uh, Easter holidays. And then also at university, I was doing some youth work too. That was my side hustle. And as often... Um, with the with these things you know my side hustle became my job i became less and less interested in learning about the law and uh, i felt like i was already kind of hitting a ceiling about um in order to get into the law i was able to get a free you know i got my unit education for free i also got a maintenance grant so i got two thousand pounds a year to go to university which was amazing luxury i now <laughs> realize in retrospect at the time it seemed measly because they kept cutting the maintenance grant and um, the main thing we were kind of complaining about was that you couldn't you couldn't get housing benefit in the summer holidays. Um, no, you couldn't. No, you couldn't sign on in the summer holidays, and you couldn't claim for housing benefit while you're a student. Uh, they were the things people were complaining about at the time. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I got paid to go to university. Basically, did a law degree. I didn't really want to do, but then retrained as a youth worker. I retrained as a youth worker in Derby City Council, uh, which is where I'm from. So I went back home to live with mum and dad for a year or so. Um, retrained as a youth worker. And then um, two or three years. And as part of that, my uh, final project, I had to kind of deliver a project. I had to kind of like um, do a project with young people, write about it. That's kind of my final project. And I chose to do one about working with the young men. And I was really interested in working with young men in doing things like challenging homophobia, challenging racism, challenging sexism with lads, kind of working with what we called then like macho values. And this was along the kind of, um, this was based off uh, uh, Connell's work on hegemonic masculinities. And um, it was seen as really, really important work at the time. And it was really important work. Uh, anyway then because of the so this was around 1997 1998 i was also working with young people in advice centers as well so there was a drop-in advice center where young people could come in and get advice about sexual health but also benefits and drugs and uh, housing and various other things 
So I was doing that. And then uh, one of my manager, uh, Diane, who, who was absolutely wonderful, my uh, first manager in anything to do with sex and relationships, uh, who was helping me with my final project, um, asked me to take over a project called Try a Condom Today, TACT. We love an acronym in uh, sex ed. TACT, SHARE, SHAG. They're very, very popular acronyms in uh, sex education. Um, and so I was, I had armed with a little ice cream box and some leaflets. I would go around um, youth clubs and some colleges, but also uh, hostels uh, and um, and a project where we're supporting uh, uh, kids who had just left care. And I would just go and sit and offer condoms and advice and a listening ear. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was also training on the job. And uh, we had this amazing resource library that uh, Diane had put together with her colleagues, and which contained some of these progressive materials from local authorities from the 1970s and 1980s that were there that I was really um, plugging into. The training I'd received from the youth service was absolutely fantastic. It had a thorough grounding in the importance of doing anti-oppression work and how to engage with young people. And I also got subsequent training as well from the Sheffield Centre for HIV and Sexual Health, which was the, they were the leading uh, trainers at the time in sexual health. But then uh, after I was doing TACT for a bit and then another kind of project which also had some discrete funding, I think which was called SHARE, where I was starting to deliver RSE in schools. So what started to become SRE, that's, uh, I'll be accurate about this. So it had gone from at some point, and I think this is in the mid to late 90s, it had gone from sex education to being sex and relationships education, which was which was a more accurate way of talking about it because we were trying to do, or at least... I think then it was more trying to contextualise sex within the relationship. It was almost as if we had to put the word relationship in, in order to kind of create the correct container. Uh, because if we didn't have the... So to go back to what we were talking about earlier, is that if we were just to say sex education and didn't have the relationships bit, it would imply that you know there was a possibility for sex to get out of control, to become a free-for-all. Because as people were talking about in the 1970s and in the... Um, you know, in the last guidance that uh, in 1977 uh, that the government released, it said, look, sex is intensely pleasurable, right? What well, brackets... It can be, close brackets. Um, so there's this realisation that sex is pleasurable. But the relationships bit, well, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, and this is perhaps another, oh, I should perhaps write about this. The relationships bit at this time, I think, was kind of like a, well, we put the word in, and then that helps to soften the word sex. And it also kind of implies that there is, just in doing it, there is already this kind of moral and ethical standard because we are saying that sex, we're almost saying sex in relationships rather than sex and relationships. Does this kind of make sense? So there wasn't really like, I mean, we were trying to do relationships uh, education, but it's not like there was a huge amount of it. And there still, in my opinion, isn't a huge amount of it. Anyway, so, so. Uh, then what happened was uh, the teenage pregnancy strategy led to money. So there was money and we were in a youth service, which was reasonably well funded at the time. It had faced cuts through, through, through the Tories. Uh, you know, youth service was, um, again, 
uh, no, I'm not going to go into a story of the youth service, but basically, um, that it that in Derby at the time there were uh, like 20 main youth services, but also many many satellite projects as well. So there might have been like 50 to 70 youth projects across the city. Uh, some of which were full time, and literally you could just—they were in community centres. They'd be full time youth workers there, and everyone would have a youth service near them. Um, and people who would be, you know, expert at working with young people, both in groups but individually, uh, working with those young people who were excluded from society generally, um, kind of plugging the gaps in. Uh, in a kind of in the safety net, uh, in the and uh, uh, you know they formed it. They played a huge role when during the high unemployment uh, era of the uh, mid to late eighties, and and certainly in the nineties there was huge unemployment as well. Uh, helping young people with skills, getting them trained up, as well as providing just a space for young people to go and hang out and socialise. Very very important. That's what. Sadly, well. Not sadly, we'll see what's come to that in a bit. Anyway, so all this money came in and it came to local authorities and local authorities started to commission services from local agencies and the youth services in the various local agencies and local authorities where this work was being commissioned were the often the ideal people to deliver work which would lower teenage pregnancy. So the, the uh, plan with the teenage pregnancy strategy was to uh, lower the rate of teenage uh, conceptions uh, to increase sex education generally, to increase uh, access to sexual health services and to increase the number of sexual health services, but also to provide support to young parents as well. Uh, so that because um, they were worried about the social exclusion of young parents. So this meant that the work that I was starting to do with young men could start to massively expand. And so... Uh, I soon pretty much got a full-time job uh, in youth in the youth service, developing kind of innovative ways of working with young men, like getting young men into sexual health services. My my role was to particularly work with young men because that was a, a, th a thread of the teenage pregnancy strategy. That it was the um, the line was, uh, you know, men have been seen as half of the problem, but also the half of the solution. Okay, uh, and so. We, me, and then a colleague of mine, Sean, developed um, a series of outreach projects uh, which were aimed at getting more young men into sexual health services, getting more young men to use condoms, as well as still doing the anti-sexist, anti-homophobic, uh, anti-racist work that we were already doing at the time. So we're now in the early 2000s. Um, then eventually I moved down to London. My then uh, partner got a job down here. I moved down here. I worked for Brooke uh, for many years, who are a sexual health charity who specialise in working with uh, young people. I worked with them for around 13 years, uh, developing slash trying to develop, depending on which borough I was working with, um, uh, approaches, again, aimed at getting more young men into sexual health services. I worked on one extremely successful service in Battersea in South London, uh, which um, played a huge role in uh, getting uh, more boys into sexual health services, more young men into sexual health services, and reducing the rates of unplanned teenage pregnancy, um, etc., etc. I really missed that job. That job was called BAM. Uh, fantastic job. Anyway, and then, so this is where it all starts to kind of go wrong. Well, it starts to go wrong in... Um, 
from 2010 onwards. And in 2010, the Conservatives came back into government. And that's when we started to see all the cuts. So uh, sexual, uh, Sex Education Forum was, um, was a quango, and they, that quango was um, abolished. And that quango then... So a quango is a quasi... Uh, it's like an advisory... It's like an advisory kind of government organisation kind of thing. I can't remember. Quango, quasi, something, 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 something. Anyway, you can look it up. Um, <laughs> uh, so they became a charity, which meant that they, uh, I think, got less money. I don't want to speak for the Sex Ed Forum. They're still with us. They're still going. They're now an independent charity, doing really, really good work in this area. Um the uh, Family Planning Association and Brooke, uh, two of the biggest young people sexual health charities, started to go through funding difficulties, let's say. So I can only speak from my experience for this, but um, I was asked in my last job, I was asked to take a 19% pay cut, 19% pay cut, um, because what happened after 2010 was that local authorities got less and less government money and so local authorities were having to cut back on their services. And some of the first things they started to cut back on were preventative sexual health services. So outreach services, um, working in uh, sexual health services. But crucially, the outreach services that would then work in schools. So just to come back to schools. So what was starting to happen nationally from the end of the 1990s were that there were many more sexual health services and sexual health providers who have more resources and, and thereby more expertise. And they were offering this for free to schools. So they were saying to schools, look, we're a local sexual health service. We need you, the young people at your school to know about us. How about we come in, deliver some stuff on safer sex, contraception, relationships, self-esteem, all that kind of stuff. We'll come in, deliver some of that, hand out some leaflets and they can come to us. Okay. And the expression back then was from people like me and my team was um, we'd have a list of schools and we'd try and get the phone number of the person responsible for sex ed and we'd send them letters and ring them and send, and send letters and ring until we got in. We kind of pestered them to kind of get in, right? That was the nature of it. So schools were being bombarded with offers of free help. And in my experience, some of the schools were very resistant. Some of them minority of schools very resistant some didn't want it at all because they were doing very well by themselves thank you very much they developed their own kind of um stuff and other schools were most of the schools were pretty receptive and they were quite happy for us to come in so from 2010 all of this stuff all of this free stuff for schools was starting to go okay in addition to that youth services were starting to be cut as part of the local authority um cuts and so we can start to see what happen, what happens. Okay, so the cuts that come in mean that the um, the the sexual health services start to dry up. So there are fewer and fewer sexual health services aimed at young people. Um, if we compare now the number of sexual health services available to young people now compared to how they used to be, it's it's very different. Sometimes it's different because it's switched to how they deliver it, but. The number of clinics where a young person can go in and speak to somebody in person is dramatically, dramatically cut. Um, and, and, you know, get access to condoms and contraception and safer sex advice and STI tests, uh, pregnancy advice, abortions, 
um, psychosexual counseling, talking to someone about sexual assault. A lot of those things have been cut. They still exist. The people out there are doing a wonderful job, uh, but um, they've been cut back to the point where uh, it's very difficult to run the service. But then, of course, before that, before those services started to be really reduced to not to to where they are now, the outreach services that were promoting those services were the first to go, and so schools were no longer getting bombarded with you know free resources free help that stopped happening and then what happened in 2020 was that they made sex education mandatory or relationships and sexual health education mandatory <laughs> and for the first time in uh, 20 years the guidance was updated so there hadn't been any guidance on what to deliver in what's now called RSE uh, since 2000 okay it took 20 years for them to do it okay uh, major failure of uh, new labor in my opinion there was a lot of money in the teenage pregnancy strategy but there was no none of that money was kind of concretized there was not a shift in power um, and uh, so there was money but no strategy which meant that a lot of really good work and crucially a lot of really good workers were lost. So I name I could name you several colleagues who were brilliant, you know, that I learned from throughout my throughout in throughout my entire career, who I'm still mates with now, you know, they have a very nice life. They got out of sex education, but they're very good at what they do now because they're very talented professional people. Um, but they're lost now. And so hundreds perhaps thousands of people who were experts at this uh, experts at engaging with young people and facilitating relationships and sexuality education in school that expertise is kind of gone now okay and so there are two things that so to come back to kind of culture war so the expertise that is available to school has kind of gone and because sex education in this country has remained this kind of political football it's kind of very a political topic where people make people make hay out of causing controversy by saying things out loud in parliament um and uh, making a big fuss over some of the resources that are available to try to make a socially conservative point that something is inherently wrong about uh, sex and relationships and sex education um that's continued but the level of support to schools has dropped which means, and if you remember back to what I was saying in the 1980s when teachers started to become more nervous and um, request less help, uh, less RSE was happening, um, that kind of is where we are now. So the the hangover from, the, from Section 28 years never really fully went away, I don't think. And um, because the, uh, there was a lot of outsourcing of sex education to the voluntary sector and to people like me, it may, it did mean that schools weren't uh, necessarily needing to train their own teachers and to get skilled up, and there was still this kind of this idea. Well, we'll get somebody else to come in and do this. Now, kind of means that schools in twenty twenty are having to deliver this kind of uh, this new guidance, um, which is tricky for them to deliver because there's an awful lot of topics in there so the guidance has got a lot of topics it's not all bad but it's kind of like a, a, a list of topics 
but it doesn't tell it doesn't really talk about best practice or how to deliver it and it's pretty thin on the ground in terms of um resources uh the resources that come with it are pretty dreadful uh it's just like a series of power like powerpoints with like keywords and phrases that don't actually tell you give people any kind of advice at all and so they don't teach people how it is that they can deliver it what what good looks like so we've got this kind of intergenerational sex ed of people who are expected to deliver to deliver sex ed who have not only not been trained in sex ed rse but also have never experienced good sex ed themselves okay because the kinds of sex ed that was being delivered before was as i was saying before was very patchy and it was only ever really this kind of biological kind of sex for the most part unless somebody happened to be in one of these progressive schools with a progressive local authority that i was talking about most rse most sex ed that people have received is this very kind of um sex is about penis and vagina sex sex is about reproduction men and women um and not even really told that it's pleasurable nothing about consent nothing about relationships nothing about emotions very mechanical very biological and the reason I know this is that I run training courses for uh, teachers and practitioners, anyone working with young people or people generally around sex and relationships, I run training courses. And often the first activity I do is to say, well, what was your sex ed like? And again and again and again and again, whenever I do the the course, no matter what the age of the people are in the course. So some of, some people are pretty young. So some people might be in their in their early twenties. Some maybe in their fifties, even their sixties. They all come back with pretty much the same thing: that sex is about reproduction. It's not necessarily about pleasure. It's about um, penis and vagina sex. It's very straight. It's very biological. It's very mechanical. No emotions. Nothing on relationships. Nothing about consent. And so, throughout all of this. What has been the kind of the main thing here has been the kind of the lack of resources, but also crucially, the fact that sex ed has become this kind of very political football has created this anxiety and tension, which means that what people do is they, they teach what they think is the thing they should say. So when people feel anxious about what it is they should teach, they think, okay, well, I'm going to stick to a very narrow script of what I think is like, okay, to teach. And so people end up teaching a very normative idea of sex. And so that kind of sex ed gets passed on and gets passed on, and gets passed on. Now, let's just for a moment compare the UK with the Netherlands. Uh, there's an another really interesting article about this comparing uh, the uk with the netherlands there are lots of differences between the uk and the netherlands generally like uh yeah culturally and socially and also politically okay but there are an awful lot of similarities uh and it is often said the uk was often compared to the netherlands because the netherlands had much lower rates of um teenage pregnancies than the uk so researchers were looking in to why this is and one of the things was is that sex ed isn't it's not that sex ed isn't a controversial topic in the Netherlands it still is but it was never used as a political football they always had this kind of pre-1980s uh kind of approach to it it was about pragmatism it's like well 
it's not ideal people having sex in these particular ways it's not ideal that you know we we do want an element of social control like social hygiene in the way that we think about sex and the way that we want sex as a society as a nation to be organized which still exists today um a lot of countries that have what seems to be really quite um progressive sex ed often do it in a very kind of uh, in a kind of liberal, this is what it is to be a member of, a citizen of our country kind of thing. There's like a bit of a, a post-colonial overtone to a lot of it, in my opinion. But anyway, um, side that's that was more of a side note. Um, so it was more like, okay, it's not ideal, but let's just be pragmatic. We need to have some sex education, so this is what we need to do. They don't have more sex education in the Netherlands, okay? But what they do is they have less anxiety about it they see it as this thing which just has to be kind of done and we'll do it as best as we can and so the approach from the netherlands was instead of asking the organizations instead of requiring organizations like what i was talking about earlier the charities and local authorities i was talking about earlier to kind of to advocate and to like to fight for sex ed instead what they did was like no we're going to do it it's fine um but we're going to trust you to develop the resources with local schools uh, and to do a really good job okay so it's kind of on you so in many ways it's quite interesting because that kind of goes back to this the thing i read out from the 1943 uh pamphlet which is well you know you should probably do it uh it's like you know we'll trust you to do a really good job uh, let's share really good practice but you know you know your kids and your schools and your parents and your governors and your head teachers better than everyone else so try to work together and do a really great job these are the kinds of things that you can kind of do but we're not going to uh spell it out for you uh you kind of do a good job and also this was in a society where their response to the hiv and aids crisis uh was the opposite of us so uh, in terms of they didn't ramp up the homophobia. In fact, they did the exact opposite. They really challenged and cracked down on homophobia at a much earlier time. So that anxiety about the delivery of RSE, plus the fact... Uh, so that anxiety about delivering RSE just wasn't there uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, but also, the... well. From what I can gather, the huge cuts haven't also happened. Um, you know, the expertise is still there. And so whenever you come across a Dutch person, ask them about their sex ed. Ask them about their attitude to sex. My friend Myline, um, who uh, was a former colleague of mine, sadly she doesn't work in sex ed anymore, uh, but we go um, we go to the pub. Uh, she's great. Uh, she's a counsellor now, really, really good. Um she says, you know, you Brits are absolutely obsessed with sex but can't talk about it. We're like, we can talk about it, but we're kind of almost bored by it. Like, we can just be like, you know, penis, vagina, elbow, knee. You know, we it's not a big thing for us. And so in that way, it is this kind of, it is, it's interesting how the politics of, of this have really played out. It's that there was this point in the 80s where uh, the what the then culture war was, or whatever it was called then, it was kind of, what was, what did we call culture war then? It was called political correctness. Woke was instead called political correctness, but I can't remember whether it was called culture war, but we definitely had it. And we've always had it for sex ed. So, and we still have it now. So people on the right wing, the conservative party and some uh, socially illiberal labor members as well, 
Lib Dems tend to be very pro-sex ed. Um, SNP are often pro-sex ed, but some of them, you know, there's a lot of transphobia around some of this stuff as well. Um, uh, so there's another kind of, so it's interesting that there is kind of, that the kind of culture war we're having now is also, is the kind of culture war we're having now is also to do with um, trans stuff. So, uh, you know, it's about trans-inclusive RSE. And that has created this new anxiety in teachers about, you know, am I saying the right thing? Am I saying the wrong thing? And there is this very powerful um, anti-trans lobby uh, who uh, these kind of... Uh, and there have always been kind of uh, lobbies of uh, anti-sex ed folk generally uh, who um, who were there panicking, uh, panicking uh, schools and making schools worry and planting stories in the press and feeding story well feeding stories to the press about people like me um which are often just kind of either made up or decontextualizing things that uh, i've said uh, or that other people have said to cr- try to create a kind of a fuss um uh but that's nothing new either so sorry i'm really rambling now but that just reminds me of um that there was this uh, the thing that took down um, one of the things that really took down the Sheffield Centre for HIV and Sexual Health, which is a really huge uh, training. So they were the, like the leading training organisation where I got my training, and anyone who was anyone in sex ed wanted to get their training from Joe and Carol at the Sheffield Centre for HIV. Joe and Carol moved on; they uh, ended up retiring. Then the Sheffield Centre. Um, uh, managed by a new person, re- I won't name him, because uh, not because uh, I like him, he's a really good bloke, but he probably doesn't want to go into all of this again. Um, they released this leaflet, which was about the importance of teaching about sexual pleasure, and the leaflet was aimed at teachers and practitioners, but the right-wing press claimed that it was a leaflet for young people, and so they made this enormous fuss about this, absolutely enormous fuss, um, around 12... 13 years ago i think and uh which ultimately i don't know whether this actually led to um uh, the demise of the sheffield center the sheffield center are still going in a form but the i don't know what i, I think the, the the cuts were kind of part of this as well but generally speaking uh they the sheffield center aren't the body that they kind of used to be sadly aren't able to offer the kinds of work they used to be able to offer is what i mean i think that's mostly to do with cuts but the cuts have meant that we as a sector have been unable to fight the cultural stuff okay so we've been so it makes it puts it's put us in a weakened position so it's not that the cultural stuff has made us weaker it's the cuts have made us weaker so we no longer can advocate for ourselves in the netherlands the agencies that i've been talking about don't have to advocate for themselves because there isn't this culture about it and they just have their jobs and they just get on and do a good job which means they're probably delivering much better sex ed than we are, possibly. And so all of these things are this kind of... Um, have emerged from uh, the from this kind of uh, assemblage of there have been cuts, but there's also this cultural stuff which creates an anxiety in teachers and practitioners generally, which means that we never really get to deliver the really super effective, comprehensive, non-normatizing... Uh, self-esteem building confidence building rse that young people kind of deserve and that's the thing which results results in a lot of bad sex ed so as for me so i'm a freelance relationships and sex educator now 
or sexuality educator, as we're starting to call it. Uh, and again, as I've mentioned before, I'm doing uh, a PhD now on the website. I've got my website, which is one of the most uh, widely respected um, websites, uh, certainly in the UK, perhaps the world. Uh, Bish and Scarletine are seen as like the two leading um, sex ed resources for young people online uh, in the English-speaking world. Uh, there are others. Um and I do training courses for practitioners. I've somehow managed to kind of uh, keep this as a career, to maintain this as a career. Um, and this podcast is part of that. I really enjoy doing it. It's one of the things I really, really enjoy doing. So uh, to come full circle, um, I hope that's kind of covered it, really. Uh, yeah, I think that's covered it. Yeah. Um, so I hope you found that uh useful a bit kind of um a bit rambly quite long oh my gosh uh i can talk to myself for a long period of time um so yeah uh thank you so much for listening um if you're into this and you want to support me to do this as part of my job please um consider supporting the patreon for a pound a month so uh that's patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships one pound a month keeps the show on the road and um there's some extra content and stuff on there as well. And um, yeah, and do remember to send in your questions. There's a link uh, to a Google form in the bio for uh, wherever you're listening to this. Okay, so thank you so much for listening. Bye.